Well, good morning. It's good to be with you all. Thank you to our music team for leading us in song. And while it is good to see all of you, it is particularly good to see one last time the Newberry family. (laughs) So they are right there. And they've been a wonderful part of our church family for a good long while, but God is now taking them somewhere else, which is probably against his will. But no, I'm excited for the adventures that are ahead of them. But make sure you guys do say a farewell to the Newberries. This is their last week with us before they move. Uh, thank you guys for, for coming this morning. I didn't think I was going to get to see you again. So I was like, hey, they're here. So good to see you guys. Uh, it's good to be with the family of God, even as God occasionally does move his people around from here to there. It was a blessing last week as well to celebrate uh, church behind the church and to be kind of a one-service church all out on the back. I hope most of you had a chance to be a part of that. And that was a great, just kind of a touching home plate message that Ben brought us about the centrality of the gospel and all that we do as a church, the centrality of the message of Jesus Christ in our preaching, the attention that we give to his word and going through it verse by verse and how we want that to be central to all that we do, as well as the centrality of the gospel in our discipleship. And in particular, as we highlighted our life group ministry, our desire that it wouldn't just be a message that's proclaimed, but in the lab part, as Ben called it, getting together with one another and asking, how do we live out this grace in which we stand practically in in our day-to-day lives? And then the way that the gospel must always be central in our evangelism and in the way in which we are loving our neighbors and sharing the gospel with them, whether that is literally our neighbors. And uh, that can be hard uh, in this area. Uh, We've been even in our own home having a challenge because it seems like it's build a tall fence season in Spokane. I don't know what the deal is, but it like all of a sudden there's all these fences going up around our neighborhood and uh, you're like, are you still there? (laughs) And it takes a lot of work to just get to know and to be invested in the lives of our neighbors and to be able to share Christ with them and and how we want that to be our evangelism strategy is loving our neighbors, whether they're the ones that live around us or our co-workers or the people in the groups and clubs that we're a part of. Everything in the church must be built on the gospel as the foundational grace in which we stand and it must be conducted for the furtherance of the gospel in evangelism and discipleship and it must be an obedience to the teaching of the gospel as given to us in God's word. Amen? That's what we're all about. But this morning we're also going to be reminded that what is true of the church as a body and what we do as a body must also be true of us as individual members, as individual people that are also living this out in our lives. And we're going to see that in this fascinating portion of 1 Corinthians that we've been in, that section that was introduced, you might recall, all the way back in chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul takes up the theme, he says, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. That's the topic that he brought up all the way back in chapter 8. And you might be thinking, of all the issues that Paul is dealing with in this letter to the Corinthians, this one seems like the no-brainer. You've got lawsuits, you've got divorce and remarriage, you've got spiritual giftedness. Okay, all those things, sure, they sound complicated. That might need a good solid chapter or two to work it all out. But, but meat sacrifice to idols, like that's just a yes or no question. Hey, should I eat this? Right? You can dispatch with that one in a verse and move on. Uh, but the devil's in the details, isn't he? And often... Our flesh hides its most dangerous toxins in the most ordinary places where we are least likely to look closely. And that's why Paul is devoting not one, 
not two, not three, but four chapters to taking that concept of meat that's being been sacrificed to idols and working out all of its practical implications and teasing out all of its theological implications. Because like in so many cases, the issue really isn't the issue. It's the issue behind the issue. Right? If you guys, I'm, I'm sure we've all kind of noticed that in your marriages and working with like, why is my boss not happy uh, and figuring out uh, what's going on with my children. Rarely does it seem like the issue that everybody's talking and upset about is the issue. It's the issue behind the issue, right? The Corinthians are wondering if they can get away with eating meat sacrificed to idols. And for many reasons, ethnic, economic, social, even political, it's easier to get by in Corinth if eating meat sacrificed to idols is, is not an issue. I think we would call it today strategic cultural contextualization. And the Corinthians have put together their slogans, they've put together their theological arguments, all lined up like arrogant little ducks in a row to explain why this is fine. But Paul sees that the issues involved here are so much more significant than the Corinthians seem to think that they are. The Corinthians are addressing what they think is this little side issue or side question over there about what they can eat. And Paul is begging them to realize this isn't a side issue. This is a smack dab in the middle issue. In fact, so far in chapter 9, Paul has just been setting them up for a big punchline that we're going to be looking at this morning. And, and the way that he's kind of waltzing into all their smug arguments here reminds me of that great philosopher, Dr. Ian Malcolm. You may remember him uh, from Jurassic Park. Can you believe that movie is going to be 30 years old next year? Ooh, boy. Dr. Ian Malcolm, who made this uh, timeless comment, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. A big lesson God is teaching us in our passage this morning is that it is so easy to get caught figuring out what we can get away with in our Christian freedom that we forget to ask what our freedom was for. Uh, We talk often as Christians about trying to live gospel-centered lives, and Paul this morning is going to remind us what that actually means and what that actually looks like. And so if you have your copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to take it and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 15 to 23 this morning. As always, to honor the reading of God's Word, I'd invite you to stand as you're able. If that's a hardship, please don't feel bad if you remain seated. But as you're able, stand as we listen to what the living God has to say to us. 1 Corinthians 9, 15 to 23 reads this. But I have used none of these things, and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. 
to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law, to those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Would you pray with me? We thank you, God, for the grace which was given us in Christ Jesus and for our fellowship as saints. And this we pray that our love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, strengthened with his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. And that you will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak the mystery of the gospel with boldness. To you be the glory in our church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you can see on your notes that our our message this morning is entitled, The All-Consuming Cause. And if we ask the question, what does it mean to be completely consumed by or completely committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I think we can look to to the life of Paul as a great example of what that practically looks like. And if you take our passage this morning, you can break it down into two, I think, main thoughts that... Paul is trying to communicate to them in the first we see in verses 15 to 17 that we love gospel boasting more than our lives. We love gospel boasting more than our lives. Begin with me there in verse 15 where he writes, but I have used none of these things and I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. Clearly starting off like this, we're jumping into the middle of an argument or jumping into the middle of a point Paul is trying to make. What are these things that Paul is talking about that he is not using? Well, in short, they're his rights and his freedoms as an apostle. And he's been listing those throughout chapter 9. Back in verse 4, eating and drinking. In verse 5, the right to get married. In verse 6, the right to not be bivocational. And then in verses 7 through 14, a long explanation of his right as an apostle to financial support from the Corinthians. Paul says here he has chosen not to take advantage of any of those very real rights and freedoms. And at this point, the Corinthians might be getting a little bit uncomfortable, especially in a culture where hospitality and honor and all those things are a big deal. They might be wondering if Paul's kind of setting up a guilt trip here. You know, hey, I'm, of course I've not been taking advantage of the fact that, uh, you know, you owe me. You know, and I'm not going to point out the fact that you should be, uh, you know, helping out here a little bit. Is Paul trying to assert his rights sort of uh, in a passive-aggressive kind of way? Is he trying to say, hey, let me list out all the things that you should have been doing for me, and maybe next time I visit you can fix that problem? Is it Paul's uh, version of Sally Brown's speech from a Charlie Brown Christmas Carol? You know, all I want is what I have coming to me. All I want is my fair share. That attitude, you know, it's cute as like a mild satire in a kid's cartoon, but boy, has that not become like a social and political creed today? How tempting it is even in our own hearts and our own lives to just have that attitude of, look, I'm not trying to like get what I don't deserve, but I do want to get everything I do deserve. Notice, however, 
This is precisely explicitly what Paul is not doing. He specifically says he is not itemizing his neglected freedoms so that the problem can be rectified because he has no intent, indeed no desire, to take advantage of any of those rights. He does not want to. Why not? Why not take advantage of what he is rightly owed? Well, he tells us, continue on there. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. Ooh, that's strong language. And I want us to notice what he's saying and what he's not saying, because Paul does not say, because all those rights are bad, right? He's not vilifying the rights and privileges that he could be entitled to as an apostle, the things that he could enjoy in Christ. That's not his point. He's not making the point that a good Christian would never take advantage of or enjoy any benefits or privileges that may be available. There's a couple different ditches you can fall off in when it comes to the discussion of rights and privileges. And ironically, both ditches end up making the same mistake, which is making the rights and privileges the issue. The first error that we can make is to vilify blessings, to vilify privileges and rights. And there have been movements in church history that are marked by this, of tremendous self-denial and severe treatment of the body just for the sake of that denial. Living in secluded monasteries with vows of poverty and silence, uh, sitting on top of stone pillars in the desert for years at a time as a way of just demonstrating your, your complete denial of all blessings uh, in the pursuit of spiritual holiness or, or superiority. And that's not what Paul is endorsing here. Not at all. He's adamant in his rejection of his rights, but not because those rights are bad, but because he has decided that in this case they pose a threat to something much more important. Something so important, in fact, that Paul says it would be better for him to be dead than to see this thing compromised or made empty. So what is this captivating thing that Paul says is more valuable to him than being alive? Well, he says it. It's his boasting. His boasting Think about Paul before he knew Christ, where his boasting would have been at. I mean, Paul gives us actually a pretty strong hint of that when he says, hey, here's all the impressive things I used to think were impressive about me. Right? He boasted about his impressive Jewish pedigree. He boasted about how important his position in society was. He boasted about how dedicated his keeping of the law was, his zeal. All of those things he looked to as a sign of confidence that he was the kind of guy he should be. But all that changed when he came to know and to trust Jesus Christ as his Messiah. And that did not actually change Paul's focus on boasting. It just moved the location of his boasting. Paul talks far more about boasting than anyone else in the New Testament. And there's a lot of places we could go to look at this, but I want to highlight just two verses that I think are helpful in summarizing what this boast is that Paul is talking about. One is Romans 15:17 where Paul writes, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Or even in our own book of 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 1, verse 31, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In short, Paul's proud confidence had come to be in Jesus Christ and in what Jesus Christ is doing. 
If you look throughout the entirety of Paul's usage of this term boasting throughout the New Testament, you will discover it's either negative, don't boast about this stuff, or it's boasting in who Jesus is and what he's doing, the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And Paul says here, nothing, absolutely nothing will be allowed to make little of that boasting. If you ask the question, is the reputation of Jesus worth giving up your rights for? Paul would respond with rights? What rights? It's better to be dead than to see any shame come upon the cause of Jesus. You can, you can feel Paul's passion, can't you? You can feel his commitment. Here's a man whose loyalties have been completely assigned to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It's so crystal clear. And yet Paul knows there's still a good chance that the Corinthians are not tracking with him. It is possible that when they hear him presenting this, they're, they're still trying to fit it into worldly categories. And they're saying, okay, so you're unimpressed with the world's social standing and the world's positions and figures. You don't care about kings and rulers and philosophers and all that stuff. Your boast then must be in the fact that like, you're a special gospel preacher. Right, that okay, so so maybe Team Jesus is more impressive than Team Caesar, and you're like the big emissary of Team Jesus, and so so that's what you're proud about is that you're Mr. Gospel Preacher Man. Paul anticipates such a misunderstanding, and notice he heads off that objection directly in verse sixteen. He says, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. I'd rather die than see my boast be made an empty one. But I'm not boasting about me as a preacher. Because if I'm talking about me as a preacher, there's nothing there to boast about. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He says he has a, a compulsion to preach. This is not optional for him. In fact, he goes on so far as to say, essentially, I am, I'm ruined if I'm not preaching. Why? Well, he tells us. Verse 17 For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. And so Paul says he's got two motivations, a selfish one and an involuntary one. If Paul fulfills his calling to be a gospel preacher, then he says he has a reward. And that word reward there most often means a payment, a wage. It can also have that idea of of recognition and appreciation, but it's It's interesting to see Paul use this word in the context where he's saying, I'm not looking for you guys to give me money. Well, then that just must mean you're really proud of being a gospel preacher. No, 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 no. Here's the deal. I have to preach. Why do you have to preach? Well, because if I do what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm going to get a payment. I am going to get a reward. Not the one you're thinking of, but, but like this is a job that comes with its own reward. And if I wake up in the morning and I'm like, I just don't feel like being a gospel preacher today. Anybody ever woken up in the morning and felt like, I just don't feel like doing what I'm supposed to do today. Paul says, even if that was true, if I woke up and were like, this just doesn't seem like fun today. He says, I'm a slave. I'm a steward in the household of God. And there's been the stewardship entrusted to me. This is not actually optional. It's like, hey, slave, I'd like you to do the dishes. If you do, there's a reward. I don't feel like doing the dishes. You're still a slave. Do the dishes. Right? Paul's like, I don't get any boasting. I don't get any credit for being a gospel minister. This is what I have to do. It's what I have to do. It's clearly as he knows how. 
Paul is leaving no room for misunderstanding. He loves boasting in the gospel itself more than life itself. Not enjoying gospel benefits, not being a self-important gospel minister. Paul's love is for the person and saving work of Jesus Christ. That and that alone is what Paul is enthralled with. That and that alone, Paul says, is more dear to him than life itself. And so he's going to then go on now to show us that what Paul is willing to die for is also what Paul is determined to live for each and every day and in every situation that God places him. And that's going to have a radical impact on how you think about rights and freedoms. But before we get to that in our next set of verses, I want to stop just for a a quick lesson or a thought for us, and that is this. Do we have a gospel-centered fall lined up? Do we have a gospel-centered fall lined up? This is a a strategic time of the year. Obviously, in youth ministry, and those of you that are parents and have children in the academic cycle, this is sort of the big kickoff week for all of that. But I think in almost every area of life, fall is a season of launching and restarting and rescheduling and recommitting. And in all of that that we're doing, where does the cause of the gospel fit into our decision-making process? If we look at our calendars, if we look at the commitments that we're making and we're signing ourselves up for, even just in the last few weeks, are we thinking about what is going to help make my life a strategic part of what God is doing in this world? Am I building in enough bandwidth to get to know my neighbors? Do I have an intentional plan with that? Is this going to be the year maybe where I I finally carve out time to be part of a a life group so that I'm being discipled with the body of Christ? Am I I serving with my giftedness in the church? Am Am I being thoughtful in, okay, this year as an employee in my In my workplace, what are the relationships I want to invest in and and what are the ways in which I want to walk with integrity and be an example of Christ-likeness there and all of the different spheres of our life? Are are we planning out our fall and forgetting why we live? Or is the cause of Christ at the center of our calendars? Let's have a gospel-centered fall, not just as a church, but as individual Christians. That's definitely been a conversation at our house. I'm not just like, you know, it's really easy as a pastor to pretend like you have a gospel-centered life because you go and work at church and then neglect that in the other areas of your life. And so this has been something our family's been trying to work through and be intentional with. Our priorities, our schedules, our wallets, our willingness to be inconvenienced as the gospel on display as the most precious thing to us, and if not, what else is? And that leads us then to Paul demonstrating what for him this gospel passion looked like as he lived it out day to day. And we see our second major point this morning in verses 18 to 23, that we love soul winning more than our rights. We love soul winning more than our rights. How many of you have uh, had somebody come along at some point and give you this speech? The point of the game is just to have fun. I heard <laughs> competitive, a little bit maybe. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of us have either heard or given that speech at one point. Calm down. The point of the game is just to have fun. How many of that that bugs you a little bit? Do you have anybody? It's like, okay, if you yeah, uh, the game would not have rules if the point was just to have fun. The point of this game, it says right here in the manual, is to win. 
this morning is for you. This morning is dedicated to you because Paul is going to talk about winning over and over and over this morning, and he'll talk about it more next week. Paul says that when it comes to living out the cause of the gospel, he's not in it for the fun. He's not in it for the social camaraderie. He's in it to win. And he's going to tell them how he is in it to win in all the different contexts that God has put him. But first he begins in verses 18 by laying out his priority to win at all cost. To win at all cost. Paul in verse 18 there goes back to this topic of the reward he'd introduced. Right? He said, if I'm serving God voluntarily, there's a reward. If not, I have to do it anyway. So I can't boast about being a gospel preacher. But he says now in verse 18, what then is my reward? Let's go back and ask, what is the... What is the payoff for being a gospel-centered person? What's this satisfying thing that's more valuable to Paul than any right or any freedom? And then he goes on to explain it. He begins by saying that when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. And so Paul begins first by setting up his strategy, his reward, his payment, his wages for being a gospel-centered person come out of his personal conviction that I want to take the good news of Jesus Christ and I want to make sure that it is freely given to everybody that will hear no cost, particularly to the Corinthians. Does that mean that Paul never accepted financial help from anybody? No, it's throughout the New Testament. You can see him accepting financial help. But Paul says, here's my strategy among you, Corinthians, that I can come and I can give you the good news of Jesus Christ without any obligation to you whatsoever, bypassing, as he says, his right to receive financial support from them. To what end? Verse 19 for though I am free from all, me, from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. That's the bottom line. Paul has chosen not to make his life about having as many rights as possible, but he has chosen to make his life about giving up any and all rights at any and all times for the real prize, winning people to Christ. Now, for those of us in the room that, uh, that love us some good, strong Calvinism, we're getting a little worried. We don't win people. God saves people. Yeah, Paul wrote that. Paul also wrote this. I want you to hear the heartbeat of a man who trusted fully in the sovereignty of God and was passionate at the same time about doing all that he could do to win people to Christ. And I want to pause here to make one more application for that for us, and that is to understand that a life of grace is a life of sacrifice. The gracious life is a sacrificial life. Paul is actually showing us what it looks like to live in the freedom of grace. Paul had grown up as a young man, an expert at hair splitting every rule and regulation. He was surrounded by the Pharisees. He was indoctrinated from birth just about in every possible rule you could imagine. Have you noticed, however, though, that often it's the case, if you find those, those areas where everybody's like obsessed with the rules, you'll also find people that have learned how to find loopholes for all of them. You notice that? 
you know, your boss who busts your chops for, you know, not getting this paperwork done correctly, yet somehow he's learned how to, like, rig the system so that he doesn't have to do any paperwork, right? That often goes together, and I think Paul grew up around that kind of a life where it's all about the rules, it's all about the regulations, it's all about the rights, and yet grew up around people who hypocritically did not actually follow them. Jesus, in fact, took a shot at the same group of people Paul grew up around in Matthew chapter 23 when he said this. uh, Matthew chapter 23, verse 1, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. Like, what they're saying is not wrong when they're reading God's word. But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. When Paul became a follower of Jesus, his whole paradigm for life shifted. He went from being a lover of the law and of the rules and of the rights and of the obligations to a lover of Jesus Christ as his Savior. And then his obsession with those rights and those privilege became replaced by an obsession with seeing souls saved. That became his driving motivation. And what that results in paradoxically is that Paul's life as one who has now been set free from the law in Christ is now a life characterized by more self-sacrifice than it ever was as a Pharisee. He has used his freedom to be more self-limiting than he was even when he was under law. The life of a Christian under grace does not demand the chance to enjoy every Christian liberty. It looks for every opportunity to see the gospel succeed no matter what the cost. And that requires some creativity. The sacrifices for the gospel needed in one context may look very different than the sacrifices for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel needed in another context. And we want to see souls won to Christ in every context that is possible. And that's what Paul is going to address in our final verses this morning. Look at verses 20 to 23. Not only do we want to see the gospel succeed at all costs, but we want to see the gospel win in all contexts. In a world so full of languages and cultures and social divisions and philosophies and religions, skill and care is needed to present the gospel as effectively as we can. In the words of Spurgeon, and this is a, in the public domain now, an excellent little pamphlet I encourage you guys to read in its entirety, simply called The Soul Winner. Uh, and it's Spurgeon, so you know you're going to enjoy it. But he writes this in The Soul Winner, Our main business, brethren, is to win souls. Like the shoeing smiths, We need to know a great many things. But just as the smith must know about horses and how to make shoes for them, so we must know about souls and how to win them for God. Paul knew souls, and he knew how to be an effective tool in reaching souls for Christ. And he's going to give us a short catalog of some of the different kinds of souls that he would go to minister to and how he would strategically bring the gospel to them no matter what the cost involved. And the first group we see in verse 20 is simply this, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. It's no surprise that Paul knew how to fit into Jewish culture. He was one. 
But what makes this opening interesting to me is that he's about to talk in his next sentence here about those who are under the law. And you would think, but that's the Jews, right? Why is he making two different categories here? The Jews and then again, those who are under the law. And there's been a lot of speculation about what he's referring to, but a lot suspect that what Paul's trying to discuss here is his willingness to submit to Jewish requirements for the purpose of staying in contact with that culture. One example of what that might have looked like in Jewish law, if you were accused of blasphemy, uh, you would be cut off from the people. You were not allowed to have fellowship or conversation with anybody who had been accused of blasphemy. There was, however, a way to get back in. And the way to get back in was to get whipped within an inch of your life. Literally. They thought that 40 lashes could kill a man. And so if you were willing to submit to 39 lashes, they would consider you to have learned your lesson and you would be reinstated into fellowship with the community and people could continue to talk to you and could have fellowship with you. And it's interesting, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11.24, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. And so it is possible that one thing that he's referring to here is him literally being willing to get whipped within an inch of his life so that he could keep restoring himself to a context where he could be in fellowship with Jews so that he could tell Jews about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether he's referring here to his whippings and things like that or not, Paul is clearly throughout the New Testament one who is willing to go to whatever length he righteously could in order to keep a door open to the Jewish people for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because the Jews have souls and Paul wants to win them for Christ. That's his motivation, that I might win Jews. And then he goes on to speak of the Jewish people and their proselytes when he says to those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. And so similarly, Paul is looking for ways that he can keep the traditions and practices of Judaism from being a barrier to gospel ministry. And whether that was how he would go and teach in the synagogues or even in his participation in certain Jewish rituals and rites and vow payments and things like that. You can read about some of that in Acts 21, 23 to 26. Paul always found ways to connect with people in the world of the Old Testament law that would allow him to win them to Christ. Because people under the law have souls and Paul wanted to see those souls come to know Jesus Christ. In verse 21, he goes to the opposite crowd, to those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. And so in contrast to his work with Jewish people and their proselytes, Paul also knew how to fit into Gentile culture. And I want us to start to get a sense of like how flexible this was as a lifestyle. Paul had learned that everywhere he went, he could give up rights and freedoms for the sake of the gospel. And so perhaps he has a lunch date with a Jewish brother or potential brother. And so he, he comes in, knock, knock. Hey, welcome to the meal. He comes in. Oh, there's a basin for your little ritual hand washing before you sit down to your meal. Paul could go, I'm in Christ now. We don't wash our hands anymore. But he didn't. He would say, sure, okay, I'll wash my hands. I'll sit where I'm expected. We'll enjoy this kosher meal together that you prepared. I have a right to eat other things, but I'm not going to complain about the meal that you've prepared. We're going to sit down. We're going to enjoy it. Why? Because I want to build a relationship with you and tell you about Jesus the Messiah. 
And then after lunch, he could get up and he could leave. He could go work on some tents for a few hours. And then he could be like, oh, it's time for uh, my appointment with my Gentile friend. He could go over to their house, knock on the door, and he could walk in. They could say, hey, come on in. The bacon's almost ready. Right? And he could, in the back of his mind, be thinking, bacon's bad. Right? Sanctification takes a while. But I grew up with this as an abomination. It's not a preference. Maybe I've developed no taste for it. And he says, great, thanks. Because I can give up all of my rights and privileges to my preferences because I want to sit down at your table. I want to get to know you because I want to tell you about Jesus the Messiah. And Paul was able to move in and out of all these cultures and in and out of all these contexts, not letting himself be the barrier to the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wanted to win souls. And how easy is it for us to make these silly little things become a barrier? Sometimes it's even stuff like, are you going to wear a tie or not going to wear a tie? Well, The tie isn't the issue, is it? There are certain contexts where you are not bound by the law to wear a tie. But you would if you cared about gospel opportunities because showing up and looking like you came off the beach to that context is going to be a barrier to your effective communication. And there are other places where you're saying, well, I always look sharp. But if I show up in this context in my suit and tie, that's going to be a distraction. Right? And so I'm not going to do that because I don't want that to be a barrier to the gospel. So the point is not, you should always wear a tie, you should never wear a tie, you should always follow this custom, you should never... That's not the point. The point is, in whatever context you find yourself, what can you do, what can you give up, what cost can you bear that makes sure that you are not a barrier to the gospel? Paul gives us one more category here in verse 22. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. There's a few different views on who exactly the weak are, but I think the best understanding is that the weak are the same group Paul was addressing in chapters 1 through 4. The weak are those overlooked and despised by society, the unimpressive and the lowly, those on the bottom rungs of the socioeconomic ladder. Paul grew up in elitist circles, right? He was the 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 protege, protege Jewish superboy. He grew up with one of the two best religious teachers on the planet at the time. He would have grown up moving around the circles of all the upper crust of Jewish society and culture. He even came from a pretty happening uh, Gentile city and would have been familiar with how that governments and all that worked. This was a guy who was comfortable in elite circles. And Paul was just as comfortable standing in front of a king and telling him the gospel as he was going into the home with the most impoverished believer, perhaps somebody even still in slavery in Corinth, and saying, hey, what a, what a privilege it is to join you tonight for this meal, and how to fit in there and not make them feel uncomfortable or looked down upon. Why? Because when Paul looked around, all Paul could see was souls and opportunities for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what his whole life was about. And for the Corinthians, they thought that made Paul really weird and unimpressive. And Paul is banging on that idea saying, guys, none of that stuff you're hung up on matters if there is a Savior and a gospel message that is for everyone. And so Paul summarizes that way of living, that whole principle This way, I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. 
That's what made Paul tick. I want to put in an encouragement and, and also a caution here as a lesson. When you look at this example of the life of Paul, the lesson we learn is contextualize the gospel minister. Don't contextualize the gospel message. Contextualize the gospel minister. Don't contextualize the gospel message. It is not hypocrisy for us to adapt ourselves to not be an obstacle in whatever environment we're in. It is hypocrisy if we start changing the message that we are preaching. I saw, for example, a, a Home Depot recently. I have, a, I have a daughter who really wants a pet cactus. Apparently that's the thing. You know, don't, you never snuggle a pet cactus. <laughs> but we were looking, and would you believe it, there is an overwhelming, dizzying array of cacti to choose from. And, and as we're looking, there was a few that definitely stood out and caught my eye. And so I walked over, wow, these look unearthly. And, and there was a reason, because when you got close enough, you realized the cactus had been painted a neon color and then had had a fake flower hot glued to the top of it. It's a real cactus, painted and with a fake flower hot glued on top of it. And there's even a note on the side that, you know, we've only used biosafe, you know, paint that's healthy for the plant and it will wear off over time. I thought, man, what a perfect example of lousy contextualization. Right? Somebody said, how am I going to catch a customer's eye from a distance and attract them to something that isn't the cactus? Right? And that is an example of the wrong kind of contextualization. And it's so tempting. It's so tempting to say, hey, you know, our culture might work in this way, a legal system, but their culture is an honor-shame system, so we need to restate the gospel so that it makes sense in that culture. That's not the same gospel then. Or to say, you know what, the way that we've been presenting the gospel with these propositional truth statements and doctrinal demands, that made sense in our culture's context when we were still part of modernity. But now that we're in this postmodern world, we need to reframe the gospel into these narratival themes and archetypes that will make sense to a culture that no longer likes to believe anything is objectively true. If you think I'm just making words up, I will show you the, the articles. I will show you the books. That's not what Paul is doing. Paul elsewhere describes the gospel as a precious treasure and our lives as clay pots that contain that precious treasure. Paul is never going to spray paint the gospel with any cultural anything so that that will look more attractive from a distance. What Paul will do is anything he can to keep the clay pot from being a distraction to the treasure. Does that make sense? He's modifying the pot, not the treasure. And that's what Christian liberty and freedom is all about. Not for us to say, hey, it doesn't matter what I do. Christian liberty, that means for the sake of the gospel, I'm going to hang out at the pub all day and go to rated R movies. That's like the, the go-to college student application of this passage. What Paul is saying is there's no right, no privilege that I hold so dear that if I get any sense that this is going to become an obstacle to people being able to encounter the good news of Jesus Christ directly and effectively, I'll give it up. I'll give it up. And so we are constantly contextualizing the gospel minister, never contextualizing the gospel message. 
Paul's passion was to see people one to Christ, no matter the cost, no matter the context. And so the Paul, for Paul, the question was never, can I technically get away with fill in the blank? It was always, how does this maximize my gospel effectiveness? And how do I know for sure that that was always Paul's goal? Well, because he tells us in verse 23, we'll close with this. I do all things for the sake of of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it, a fellow partner or sharer in it. Having entered into the the grace of God, Paul wants to just live in this gospel bubble, in this gospel stream. He wants to share and make the most of it that he possibly can. He's like a good athlete who isn't sitting on the sidelines meditating on how many Gatorades they're entitled to this game. Right, I've got to pace myself because I think I can get four without the coach noticing. A good athlete is meditating on what can I do no matter what it takes for our team to win, right? Or a good student who's not there sitting at the computer going, how big can I bump this font before my teacher notices? A good student is thinking, how do I master this material? Or a good employee who, who's not trying to figure out, can I game my sick days into a little bit of extra vacation? But they're invested in the success of the business. Christian, it is tempting for us to try to make the point of our faith, our happiness and our comfort in Christ, instead of striving to make every part of our lives serve the all-consuming cause of Christ. And sometimes that will look like feasting in his name. And enjoy those seasons when that is what is most strategic for the gospel. And sometimes that will look like fasting for his name. And we should be as enthusiastic about that because we'll tend the fields when it's in the rains and the greenery of spring. And we'll also tend the same fields when it's in the heat and the browns of summer because we're not motivated by the thought of a nap in a hammock in the shade. We're motivated by the appeal of a rich harvest. And that's what we have committed ourselves to. And that takes us to our observance of the Lord's table this morning. So I invite you to take out your elements and prepare them if you would. We've talked all morning about the importance of complete commitment to the gospel. And it's good to stop and remember what that gospel is. And the gospel message is a story of the same kind of life that we just studied. Of Jesus Christ, who though he was in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not hold on to all of his rights and privileges and freedoms, but he emptied himself, laying aside the independent usage of those advantages so that he might come in the form of man and take upon himself the very form of a slave and walk obedient to the will of his Father for the glory of God and the winning of souls which he held to be more dear than his own life. And we know that because we hold in our hands the symbols of his death for that. And it is for that reason that God highly exalted him and has put him at the right hand of the Father with a name above every other name. And that's the model for our lives as well. That because Jesus did that for us, and by faith in not just the good thinking, but the accomplished work of God for sinful man, we can be his children. Because of that, we now have the privilege to imitate our Savior in laying aside all of our rights, all of our privileges, all of our benefits, all of our comforts for the glory of God and the winning of souls as well. And so I would ask you just to 
take a moment in your hearts to ask God to renew in us a gratitude for what Christ has done and also to renew in us a zeal for the cause of Christ much more precious to us than whatever rights or privileges we may lay aside in its service. And then we will partake together in just a minute. Father, as we we hold in our hands the cup and this bread and the symbols of your, your son's death, we are just reminded once again of our great unworthiness to be able to speak to you, to be able to be in your presence, let alone to be called your children, and of the great work that your son has accomplished for us. We thank you for that. And we unite around that. We identify with that sacrifice, and indeed that sacrifice is what gives us our identity as the children of God. We pray, Lord, that you would fill us with a, an all-consuming love for you and for your Son, that we would not leave here today obsessed with our privileges and our rights and our freedoms and how we will or won't use them, but we would leave this morning consumed with Jesus Christ and his goodness and the urgency of the gospel message and the glory that you are displaying and bringing sinners to yourself and using people like us to be a part of that process. And we would be excited to creatively participate in that in whatever way that you would bless us. And so Lord, may we be united in your name and may we also be united in your mission. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take together.